You're listening to Design Tomorrow. When I was nine years old, my stepfather took me to visit his office. He led me down this very plain corridor, lined with narrow workspaces, each one humming with desktop computers and overflowing with books and papers and files. It was pretty much what I expected to see. Now one of those narrow spaces was his. In it, he had a poster on the wall from a dance performance he'd seen in Boston. There was this marionette hanging from the ceiling made of blue foam balls that he called Mr. Blueberry. There were stacks of CDs everywhere. He loves music. But this time we didn't go in. We passed his office and continued walking. At the end of the hallway, we reached a set of double doors. On the other side of them were things I had not expected to see. It was the stuff that made this place truly special. Inside, I found a soundproof chamber. Now, I'd never experienced anything quite like that before. So it felt about as close to magic to sit in it as I imagined I'd ever get. In the middle of the room, a set of robot arms sat on a long table, each with a trailing snarl of cable running to a computer station somewhere around the room. Now, I had a toy version of one of those, but seeing the real thing, even without any idea what they were being used for, was fascinating. There were keyboards and mice and circuit boards and soldering irons scattered everywhere. There was an electricity to the place. It vibrated with discovery. But at the end of the room, on a freestanding pedestal, was the thing I remember best. A single mannequin forearm, wearing a silky black glove covered in small electrodes and wrapped in fine white wire. This mysterious relic captured my imagination and was the subject of many daydreams and drawings for years to come. My stepfather didn't work for some secret corporate skunkworks or a military research facility in a hollowed-out mountain. He was a university employee. As an engineer and a computer scientist, he and his colleagues studied human-computer interaction and developed assistive technologies for the disabled. That glove, I later learned, was a prototype for a gesture-based interface designed to assist the handicapped, one which was later rebranded as an accessory for a well-known video game console. Now, most of my friends, to whom I of course bragged about seeing and touching that glove, found this origin story thrilling. I found it disappointing. To me, it wasn't the story of how a cool product came to be. It was the story of how a beautiful idea came to be forgotten. It felt then, as it does now, that good technologies, things designed to help people live better, cannot make their way in this world without first proving their worth as entertainment. You see, I was raised to see technology as a means to an end, as the ladder we climb to a future we want to inhabit because it's better for us than the present, as something fundamentally altruistic. Today, I see a culture of technology firmly following the opposite path. I want to take a moment to think about why. 
You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Just earlier this year, one of the last analog timetables used for decades at Philadelphia's 30th Street Station was replaced with an LED screen. Philadelphia's 30th Street Station, the station's famous clicking departures board, we've all heard it, you can hear it right now if you just think about it, mm-hmm. is coming down earlier next year. Amtrak is replacing the board with a digital one, and as NBC10 photojournalist Jim Friedman shows us, the station will be silent of a sound that has become familiar to travelers around the globe. It didn't go easily. There were protests, letter-writing campaigns, hashtags. Yeah, I'm gonna miss it. I mean, it's- a local lawmaker even got involved and tried to throw his weight around. But in the end, what can you do? the screen won, and the old display was sent to a museum. In fact, for the last decade, split-flap displays like the one in Philadelphia have been retired everywhere, replaced, of course, by big, bright computer screens. But here's the thing. Those analog displays might have been old, but most of them were still working just fine. They've been useful, easy to maintain, energy-efficient, and beloved for the way they sound for the way their fluttering sound draws your attention when relevant, but otherwise leaves you alone. And yet, it's still out with the old and in with the new. But you know what? LED replacements have no hope of lasting as long as their predecessors. Software changes constantly, so sometime very soon, some small shift in some convention whether it's an operating system, an API, screen resolution, or an aspect ratio, will be the rationale for a new screen. Way sooner than, you know, a change in how electricity works. But in the meantime, you can count on public LED screens to draw as much of your attention to them as possible until their last day. What was once a single-purpose, sense-engaging technology will now be just another television. Now here's the news. Okay, so it sounds like we're headed into yet another rant about screens. What exactly does this have to do with where we started? With my stepfather's lab and this idea that tech often has to sell before it can help. 
Well, that's just it. These old analog signs were designed to do one thing, to tell you when trains are coming and going, and to do it as directly and simply as possible for as long as possible. And they've done that. All it costs the municipal transportation systems is some electricity and the maintenance of the input system. But now, with pressure to modernize, the solution to replace displays like this with a variety of multi-purpose and sometimes general-purpose screens will erode the original focus of the timetable display. Other things are going to work their way into that display's purpose. Partially because some people will sincerely believe that that's a good thing that showing you other kinds of information will be useful, but also because some people will think that this surface needs to make money. And so there will be ads there. And who knows what else. And that will again prove that this original technology, designed to do something to help you out in a way that was entirely aware of its context and entirely aware of your need for peace and quiet and entirely aware of its ability to contribute to the common good, has no place in a world that values the opposite of each of these things. Screen experiences in our world are designed specifically to be context agnostic. So you get the same home screen no matter where you are. You get the same ticker in Chiron landscape no matter what channel you're on. And specifically to interrupt and redirect your focus, to be the noisier noise in a sea of noise, and specifically to contribute to commerce. Which, in situations like these, is almost always confused with the common good. So imagine, if you will, what it would mean to modernize if we all agreed that modernization didn't have to look like a big, shiny, glowing piece of rectangular glass. That's the sound of an object created because someone imagined a future in which surfaces are not necessarily destined to become screens. And it's an object that probably wouldn't exist had those old split-flap displays not come first and been so good at what they do. It's called the Pixel Track, a concept for digital displays created by a British design studio called Berg that used physical pixels, not generated light, to represent information. That means they have to take a completely different approach to how that information is first generated and how it's updated. And that's what makes the pixel track an actual modernization of a split-flap display. See, what I think makes split-flap displays so interesting is that they use very little power. In fact, they only use power when the information they display changes. Because the visual elements, its pixels, are physical, Keeping information on the screen that doesn't change takes no power at all. A screen, on the other hand, uses power all the time. If the power goes out, the screen goes blank. Here's one of the creators of the Pixel Track, Jack Schultz. There are, of course, electronic displays like LED dot matrix screens and LCD sort of television panels bolted to the walls, but they're not always appropriate to the environments in which they sit, and they have quite a lot of infrastructure needed to keep them on and working. So uh, we've really been looking at uh, alternatives to those systems and how you can get connected displays to be a bit more accessible, a bit more flexible, and a bit more sort of in tune with the places that they sit. With a component like an LED, uh, they constantly need to be fed power in order to continually represent the information that they're holding. We've been experimenting with a system of mechanical pixels, 
They don't require any power to maintain their position, only to change them. We've been looking at different configurations of magnets to change those states. And in the end, we've moved on to uh, a very simple uh, mechanical actuator to physically rotate the pixels between the on and off position. Now, here's where just hearing about it may not be enough to get you properly excited about what Jack is describing. So I've included a link to a video about the pixel track in the show notes. What Schultz begins to describe here is a long horizontal display. Picture a stock ticker or something like that. Now on that display are small rectangular units that can be flipped, sort of an on and an off state, which allows you to write text across it. The really cool part is how those physical pixels get turned from on to off. Instead of using a rotating gear system behind each pixel, which is essentially how a split-flap display works, the pixel track's text is written by a moving component, which runs behind the display and switches the pixels as it runs from left to right. That's where the pixel track gets its name. It's basically a track with a little train car, and it runs behind it and uses a simple motor to push each pixel and flip it to either an on or an off state. Watching this thing in action is like watching the techno baby of a dot matrix printer and a toy train. Now let's go back to Schultz again to hear a little bit more about that. We've designed a display which is fairly low resolution. It's good at presenting text. The display works with a series of modular kind of track parts. And uh, the track can be as long as you need it to be. Uh, works a little bit like a kind of toy railway track or a Skelex trick kind of Hot Wheels type track. We remove as much of the electronics from each pixel as possible. So all that's left is the mechanical repositioning. And we embed that essentially into a kind of scanning head, a sort of train which moves along the array of pixels, turning them as it goes, according to the information it's received from the web. Berg's concept video goes on to imagine how the pixel track would look and work in a variety of public spaces. It's really impressive. But what I appreciated most is how Schultz describes the importance and relevance of something like a pixel track in a world where everyone has a super high resolution screen in their pocket. One of the things I find most interesting and exciting about this display is just to think about all of the power that you get in representations of software systems on smartphones and screens can now be brought really elegantly into physical spaces. I'm curious to see what that brings. I am too. Not just because it's an open question, not just because I'm curious and nerdy and this sort of thing is interesting, but because for me, a more desirable future than one in which I spend more time mentally relocated from where I am by a device I hold in my hands is one in which I can be where I am. Where I can be present and immersed in what makes that space unique and not constantly distracted by an ever-seductive remote signal that forces a sameness onto experience no matter where I am. See, Berg's pitch was that signage can gracefully go high-tech without going full TV. That embedding technology in tactile objects makes for a more interesting world than consolidating all information experiences into one-way displays. Sadly, no one bought it. A few years after Berg created this concept, Berg shut down. I think they were just ahead of their time. As a designer, I can't help but imagine possibilities. 
for how things could be in the future, but also how they could have been today. I can't help but imagine a world in which a company like Berg had a greater influence on design that spread out through culture in a commonly recognized and celebrated way. I can't help but imagine a world in which the thinking behind those soon-to-be-extinct split-flap displays, that the persistence of information and the consumption of resources is directly linked, that that would shape the design of objects and the way we use them and the way we think about how we live together in this world. I can't help but imagine a world in which my stepfather's colleagues, who all began their careers more than three decades ago with a shared value for the altruistic power of technology, could now trace a present day that is better for more people back to the prototypes they assembled in their lab. But the same culture that took that glove and repackaged it as just another joystick took that team and scattered them throughout a market willing to pay handsomely for speed and seduction, but cared little for how that same technology could create lasting connections between people and parity where nature withheld it. The culture failed them. And so I'd like to encourage you to imagine a different world, whatever that means to you. Maybe a world with fewer screens, or maybe a world where the difference isn't a matter of surfaces, but where we spend our attention. I can picture that world. And it isn't a neo-puritanical utopia peopled by dour digital ascetics, nor one in which nostalgia resurrects the typewriter. It's a thriving and textured technological landscape that engages our senses much more thoroughly than our world today and binds us together in ways that our filter bubble machine cannot. My stepfather's lab created technology to help minds do what the body wouldn't allow. To engage with the physical world, not to assimilate to a digital one. And since then, we've done the opposite. But we can change course. And we should. Well, friends, that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. Nothing will spread the word about this show better. No technology, no ad, no platform than a good old-fashioned personal recommendation. I'm serious. I can see from the stats that are available to me that when an individual out there recommends the show personally, either on their podcast or their newsletter, or on Twitter, that the resulting growth in subscribers is bigger than anything I could pull off on my own. I've run ads for other podcasts, and seriously, I've never seen an ad campaign deliver like Making Friends does. So I thank you for your support. Now about today's show. You know, I've thought about the subject of nature versus nurture for as long as I can remember. But more so than ever since I became a father. There are times when I watch my child and know, just know, that she would be who she is no matter where 
when or to whom she was born. I could see aspects of her personality in place just moments after she emerged into this world. But also, there are days when I watch her playing with other children at school and I see differences in the way they talk and think that have obvious ties to where they came from and who they spend the most time with. And so, I often wonder whether being introduced to design and technology by my parents, a mom who studied fine art and a stepfather who worked at the intersection of linguistics and computer engineering and research, whether that set me on a course that has defined my career by way of first compiling my personality, or whether who I am intrinsically enabled me to see the lives my parents were living, the choices they were making, and learn from them. After all, I could have lived in the same house with the same people and ended up interested in completely different things. This could have been a show about baseball or astronomy or cribbage or cocktails, but instead it's an ongoing dialogue with the world that with every episode, my family is there as a silent participant. And so I wonder about you too. Where did you come from? Who shaped how you see the world? I know that thinking about that, about tracing the origins of your worldview, your preferences, your ideas, that that is a key to unlocking the most potent version of your imagination. The one that will shape the world differently from anyone else on it. Do that work. The world, quite literally, depends upon it. And remember, that's because what we do today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.